0: are in this season of Advent. And, uh, you know, it's one of the things I was talking to my dad last night while uh, we were watching the Clemson game, um, and uh, who won. And we were talking about Advent, and we were doing Advent. I said, you know, Advent's one of those things that that in the in the church, you know that especially after Constantine came to power, where Christianity became pretty much status quo before that it, you, you, it, was, it was hard to be a Christian if you called yourself a Christian, you meant it because you knew you 'd get persecuted but post Constantine it was just really easy to be a Christian because the Emperor was a Christian and, and everything was Christian and it was really safe and so so they reached this point where Christianity was safe and, and so what you find so often in in situations where you know, it's just, you need to pay attention because this is important because I'm about to call you out and you don't know it. But when you get to a place that's culturally Christian, it's just really easy to be a Christian. It's like the world we live in, right? It's easily, easy to be a Christian. No one's persecuting you. No one's giving you death threats like we are here, Right. Uh, no one, you know, it's officially here in the South. I mean, everybody's a Christian in the South, right? Because that's what else are you? And so, and so you have this dynamic going down. So the leaders of the church said, man, we, this is a true story. We really missed the days when we were persecuted. We really missed the days of persecution because, man, it was really simple and clear to figure out who was Christians back then. And so they said, we've got to do something to to awaken this wonder of of this of 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 longing for Jesus, really to renew a passion and a love for Jesus again, instead of just having cultural Christians who are like, yeah, I'm a Christian, woohoo, right? And and then they don't live anything like the rest of their day, right? No, we need to like awaken people, and so they created the they created Advent. So you have your nice advent calendars now that you do with your kids because it's a cool thing to do and you like push the little button little thing and like you reach inside and there's something about christmas right and and the early church said no we're creating advent because we're afraid that people who call themselves christians actually are not and we're going to tell them that they need to celebrate advent because the word advent means the coming of someone important. The coming of one. And so the idea is, you don't, like, so in Advent, you don't celebrate that Jesus came. You celebrate that he's coming again. That's the nature of Advent. Jesus is returning. You live your life Honoring him with everything that you have, every moment of every day, because tomorrow could be the day. And so this is the nature of Advent. Jesus came. Woohoo! Jesus in the manger. Woohoo! Right? And he is coming again with his eyes blazing like fire, with his robe dipped in blood, and he's come to destroy the wicked and the broken and the things of the enemy. That's Advent. Jesus is coming again. And so when we talk about Advent, people, please. That's awesome we celebrate Jesus in the manger because it's true and it's a miracle. But the idea of Advent is, are you living as if Jesus is returning tomorrow so that if he walked through the door, you would run to him with joy rather than put your head down because of guilt? Are we living our lives prepared for his return tomorrow tomorrow? giving the best of our energies and ourself to Him every day in honor of what He has done and what He is doing and what He will do. Advent's not something you play around with, and it's not a calendar. It is a season of the church fathers saying, we are scared of cultural Christianity, and we want our people to wake up and realize that Jesus could return, they need to live like it, and therefore they need to love Jesus with all their heart, all their soul, and their mind, and they must love their neighbor with everything that they have. So as we talk about Advent, please don't think Advent calendars. Don't think about joy to the world and sing it as if it's like it's a song to be sung because you like because it makes you feel good and brings you memories right of past experiences please don't think about the hallmark channel (laughs) right we've watched 25 hallmark movies in the last five days at my house right nothing wrong with it but you know what i'm getting at right we want to focus on the fact that jesus has come he is present and he's coming again and so when we talk about advent when we talk about christmas i want you to recognize if this is okay for you that it is a specific action to destroy safe cultural christianity that's what it's about he's coming again prepare yourselves prepare yourselves we are in the season of Advent, that's leading up to Christmas, right? And we celebrate this Advent. We celebrate He came, He's present, and He's coming. And so with that, we said there's a thrill of hope, right? There's this thrill of hope. We sing it this second going, Oh Holy Night. The thrill of hope. And we said last week that Biblicus is important. Because what I'm going to do this morning, we're going to spend the very first third of my message, and I'm going to put you in the, in the seat of Jesus, in the seat of God. I want you to be awakened to what God saw and what He felt and what He experienced. I want, I want you to be kind of be awakened to the gravity and the weight of what was going on in the world in the area of sin that ultimately caused Jesus to come and to save us, right? But we said last week that... That the Israelites, the Jewish nation had, listen, they had great hope, biblical hope, no shadow of a doubt attached to it. Biblical hope is an assured, faith-filled confidence. They had hope that Savior, Messiah, right, the anointed one, the Christ, was coming. They had a a hope, a deep-seated, rooted faith and confidence that a Savior was going to come and to set them free. And we said they had this hope and this confidence because they knew the promise of God. Grounded in Genesis chapter 12, I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. This is the the, the covenant made with Abraham. Your name will be great. I will make you a great blessing nation you will the, the all the world will be blessed through you those who curse you I will curse those who bless you I will bless and then every other prophet from Genesis 12 all the way forward look back to that promise that God made with Abraham and said God will make us a great nation God will bless us God will destroy these heathen nations that are keeping us under their their rule Roman Empire, Jesus' time, right? He's going to do this because he promised it, and he has to be faithful to his promise because God cannot not be faithful. And so they lived in hope of Advent. The first one, they lived in hope and confidence and conviction and belief and trust that the Savior would come and to set them free. And so every prophet spoke to it. Every prophet spoke to it. There's one who will come. He will be our Savior. He will he will be the Lord over all the nations. You can read in Isaiah and, and Hosea and Amos. You can read it in Psalms. You can read it in, in Isaiah. You can read in Ezekiel. read it in all the prophets. They lived. This is important for you. They lived in confidence and trust and belief that the Savior could come tomorrow, living in anticipation and hopeful faith, no shadow of a doubt, with an assurance that the Savior would come. And so we said, this is the thrill of hope. God promised it, and he came. But I want you to think about that when Jesus came, everyone was completely unaware of what was actually going on in their life. They literally thought that they were the oppressed ones. They literally thought that they were the ones who were in desperate need. And, and, and they were, but they were specifically thinking like Roman rule, right? But what do you think about God? God looks down and what does he see? We all know this, the gravity and the weight of their sin. They were completely unaware of the spiritual need that defined their life. They were selfishly aware of their need to be released from this Roman Empire but God's view was so much bigger. They saw a little flag of Roman Empire, and God looked down and saw the weight and the gravity and the sin of the entire world birthed out of disobedience and the rule and the reign and the flag of the enemy himself, the spiritual enemy. Their view was limited. God's view was Unlimited. He wanted to come and bring this thrill of hope, and of bringing salvation to a world that didn't even fully understand how great its need was. God looked and he saw the sin that defined your life. In my life, in everyone's life, we see it pictured well in Romans chapter 3, in the language of Paul, starting in verse 10. You can follow along or read in your Bible with me, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. He says this, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass or 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 vipers is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no... Fear of God before their eyes. When God looked before the first advent in hopes of His coming, in need of a people who needed a Savior, He saw this. So let's press pause again. For those of you who kind of checked out because you've been hearing this message for the last forty-five years in church, you can't understand Christmas. You can't understand Advent. Unless you understand the gravity and the weight of sin that God saw. How many of you saw that really bad Noah movie with Russell Crowe in it? Right? You remember but you remember that scene remember that scene where his son, I think, goes into the the town where men are? And do you remember the depravity of sin? Like it was just like you sat there and watched and it was gross and uncomfortable. Probably one of the most powerful cinematic views of the depravity of man. I would say this, like fast forward to that part, watch it, and then this take me back, right? Or throw it away, I could care less. Let's watch that scene. It's powerful. God sees the gravity and the weight of sin. But the, this is important. The defining characteristic that defined Jesus' lens in the midst of all of this is his love, Right? The defining characteristic of God of God is is that He is love. God is love. And so when he looked upon his people, he saw their depravity, their brokenness, right? He saw the the gross, sinful nature that defined them. He saw their their selfishness. He saw their pride. He he saw their acts, everything that they thought, everything that they did, the things that everyone was trying to hide and keep from people. He sees it brightly and clearly, right? He sees all of this, right? But the lens that defined even in viewing this was God is love. In fact, Christianity is the only world religion that defines God by the characteristic of love. It's only one world religion, including Islam, will say that God can love. But the Christian is the only one that says God is love. It is the characteristic that defines him because God loves because he is love. And so you have this tension, don't we? God loves us. But on the flip side, God is completely perfect. He is pure, he's undefiled. The word the Bible uses is holy. He's completely other than, completely set apart than. He is perfect. He is undefiled. And here in lies the issue that faced human beings before the first advent, or the first coming of Jesus. God wanted to move in the lives of his people but their utter depravity, their overwhelming sinfulness described in Romans 3 literally hinders God from relating with us. So he couldn't do it. Like, you know, there are lots of things that God can't do. Lots of things. God can't move in the life of someone who will ultimately in, in, who is in sin. He's like, hey, there's a wall here. He wanted to move, but sin literally kept him from it. Our sinfulness poses a great dilemma for God. He perfectly loves us, but is perfectly holy and cannot do anything. Listen, he, can't, he can't have anything to do with sin. Romans 1:18 tells us that God can only have one stance towards sin, holy rage. Romans chapter six, two and three tells us the wages of sin is death, right? So the consequence, the result of one sin in your life means that death has to occur. This is a biblical fact from Genesis Revelation. Death is the result of any sin in our life. There has to be a death. Sin, blood has to be spilled. If God ever made light of sin, if God ever made light of sin and caused it to, to go unpunished even once, he would be denying his, the perfection of his holy nature. And God cannot do that. God cannot. Literally cannot. He can't. It's not in him. He literally can't do it. He can't ignore or excuse sin. He just can't. He's too perfect. He's too holy. He's too just. He's too righteous. He can't. I'm putting you in the seat of God in that moment when he's looking down at the people that he loves with great love and affection and says, I want to move, but I can't. Do you see the great dilemma that defines why that defines the coming of Jesus the first advent? in fact, if you just press pause from when we look at christmas like it's it 's why we celebrate Jesus coming at Advent to be honest with you it 's why I wake up every morning and I celebrate his coming again to me every morning because i don't know about you but i'm really bad at conquering sin in my life and i need someone stronger than me to do that and so i thank jesus thank you that you continue to save me every day because if i don't have you i won't make it i celebrate that you saved me here but i celebrate celebrate you save me every day from the effects of hell and I praise you, Jesus, that you will save me for eternity. We see this reality. So the scenario for us, you've seen all these terrible massacres happening, right? Saw one in California just this week. So again, I want you to put yourself in the God's shoes and recognize that every single one of these who are, who are responsible for these massacres are, are actually designed and created by God as his children. Who have just turned away from him. So in this moment, I want you to assume that one of these massacres that have happened were actually the responsibility of one of your children. Putting ourselves in Jesus' shoes. Your child or your nephew or your, your spouse was literally responsible for this massacre. And in this moment, as much as you would like to say, "Hey, hey, he just had a bad day. Excuse that, right? Let me bring him home." No, 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 no. I listen. No, no, no. You just let, let me let me take him home with me. As much as you want to grant their child or your spouse or whatever it is freedom, as much as you want to 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 set them free and bring them home, you know that can't happen, right? Like you know that when they are taken into captivity. What has to happen? There, there is a consequence. There is a consequence, isn't there, for every sin, for every action? Justice must take place. Correct. You can't just walk into the judge's chamber and say, "Hey, it's my kid. I love him." Judge will say, "I'm sorry. There are consequences for actions, and justice must take its course." There is nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can do. This is the scenario God is in, right? Because sin, a big word here, is antithetical. It is an unequivocal opposition to God's holy nature. And again, there's a consequence. God cannot just pretend like it didn't happen and excuse it, right? God loves sinners and wants to enjoy perfect fellowship with him through eternity. But there are consequences. There are consequences. You can't just walk in and release your child, release your spouse, release your friend. You can't just pretend it like it didn't happen, didn't happen, Jedi mind trick, right? You can't do that. No, it has to. There has to be a consequence. And so Jesus, again, remember, you're in his shoes. You're looking down with him. Imagine he puts his arm around you and says, Brit, look down with me, brother. Do you see all of this? And Brit is undone. He has a really tender heart. He sees the brokenness of humanity with God, and he's like, what are we going to do? And he goes, we're going to have an advent. Oh, The thrill of hope when it happens. Oh, it's going to be so good. They have no idea what's coming. It's going to be amazing. Do you see the depravity that defines their life? Do you see how limited their knowledge is of what they want me to do? Set me free from Rome. I want to set them free from Satan. Oh my gosh, can you, like in Jesus' like this is going to be good, man, right? The angels are already, they hear the angels, they're preparing the song. They're preparing the song over here. Holy, holy, holy. Oh, we can't wait to sing it. The thrill of hope to break in, right? The thrill of hope that I promised I would come. And they're hoping, you see these holy people here, they're hoping, they're hoping for my coming, they're praying, they're believing, my prophets are proclaiming, reminding everybody, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, live your life prepared, he's coming, he's coming, oh, he's going to do his thing, he's coming, he's going to come, he's so faithful, we can hope, we can believe, he promised he would come, he promised Advent would happen, he promised the Savior would come. And Brit's excited. He says, I can't wait. When's this happening? On Christmas. Brit's like, what is that? It's the time when the Christ, the Savior, comes to the world. The thrill of hope. Because they can't have relationship with us as they are. Something has to happen. And so we have then this moment The seriousness of our sin. How serious is our sin? This is important. How serious is sin? Just one sin? You have to view sin through the cross. Because the the sin was so powerful that it literally took the cross of Jesus to destroy the power of it. Go watch the passion of the Christ and see what Jesus suffers, and that's just physically. Imagine what he's going through mentally and spiritually when that moment happens when the Father is separated from him. And that's how serious God takes sin. Let me just say something to you real quick. You don't call it sin in your life. You just call it personal struggles. But it's sin still today for those of us who are wrestling it's sin. It is the thing that put God on the cross in Jesus. Do you see? That? Because that's how serious your actions and your thoughts are. You have to see the gravity of sin through the eyes of Jesus as best as possible before you can actually fully realize that Christmas is not about the Hallmark Channel. It's about the advent of the coming of the one who could break the power of the enemy, who could save us from our sin, and then put us into relationship for eternity with God, Creator. The thrill of hope in Jesus' act of salvation. How does it express itself? What we see is that there is a hope for a substitute, a thrill of hope for a substitute. The wages of sin is death. We already named that, right? The result or the consequences of wrongdoing. There has to be consequences. There has to be justice for sin. From Genesis to Revelation, we said, one truth is evident. Blood has to be shed for sin. Death must occur. Someone must die. Something must die in the place of sin. You see the animal sacrifices, right? Go back to our scenario. So you're over here. Your spouse, your friend, or your child has has is responsible. This incredible, this terrible, terrible, awful massacre. And you're like, I want them to have freedom. I want them to be pardoned. I want them to be released, right? I I want them to have salvation and save from this, right? Because it's surely gonna it's surely gonna be a death penalty of sorts. And you're like, ah, and you go, I want to I want to I want to do it. I want to be in their place. I want to put me in, substitute me for them, right? And the first like, no. No one. No, you, you can't. You can't. No one can. All of a sudden, this person comes along and says, I can. I can. I can be the substitute. I can literally come in. Your, your son's going to have to, or your whatever, your daughter's going to have to submit their life to Jesus for me for it to happen. But, man, I will be in their place, and I will take it. Jesus, the hope is... Is Jesus is our substitute. Remember the dilemma that that, that God faces is he wants to save us, have eternal relationship with us. But because of our sin, we are individually and corporately, literally at war with him. We all fall, we all sin, we all fall short of God's plan, we are all guilty. But the promise, whether you know it or not, the promise of God is found in Isaiah 53 where he promises, I will come and I will be your substitute. I will come and I will literally die in your place. I will take the consequences. I will take the judgment. I will take it upon me. Don't tune out because you've heard this message 16,000 times in your life. This is the Christmas story. This is the story you should tell. This is the first advent. This is the coming of Jesus. This is what we celebrate, that he's come that he's coming every day and he's coming again. We celebrate Advent. We celebrate the promise and we have hope. These people had hope that the Savior would come in Isaiah 53. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but just kind of point out some of these things. It promises the Savior one who would die in our place. It says he was wounded for our transgressions or sins, he was crushed for our iniquities again, of our sin. And he would bear the punishment, he would take the consequences. That would ultimately bring us peace. The immorality of all the world would be upon him. His life would be an offering for sin, verse 10 of Isaiah 53. No one understood what was happening when Jesus came as a newborn at Christmas, but God did. God, listen, this is important, hear this. God himself decided to suffer. God himself decided to suffer The wages and the consequences of our sin. God, the son, freely agreed with the father to say, I will align myself with fallen humanity and become like them. So that I will suffer your wrath. I will suffer the consequences of your anger. Christ accepted the punishment for sin in our place. And then he foreshadows the substitution. I want you to hear these words are so powerful. In John 15:13 when he says, guys, looking at his loved ones, guys, greater love has no one than this. That someone laid down his life for his friends. Do you see the power of that? No greater love because he's foreshadowing. I'm going to listen. He's foreshadowing. I'm going to be a substitute for you. I'm going to lay down my life so you don't have to because you are my friends. Which leads to the second the second thrill of hope in the, in the Advent. It's the thrill of hope of experiencing God's love. The hope for love. 1 John 4.10. This is powerful. This is how we know what love is. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins, to take upon him the consequences of our sin. I want you to all recognize, listen, there is no love in this world. There's no authentic love in this world, whether for you to your child, you to your spouse, you to your parent, you to a friend, you to whatever, right? There is no love apart from the cross. There is no love apart from the cross. You can't understand love. You can't understand God apart from understanding the cross, right? Because of his great love for us, God has chosen not to allow the punishment for our sin to fall on us, nor on some innocent third party. Rather, on the cross, God chooses to let it fall on himself to express, you want to know what love is? This is it. We look at the cross. Steve Siemens, a professor at Asbury Seminary, says this: God wills. This is important. Hear this: God wills that sin shall be punished, but He does not will that sin shall be punished without also willing that the punishment shall fall upon Himself. Guys, this is this is the, this is the message of Christmas. Like you have to allow the story It's like. There is no good news. There's no gospel apart from this. Because this is the good news. It should be proclaimed. Is it good news for us? I mean, the nature of love, because I would say this: three specific ways we see love expressed by Jesus. And this very quickly, Jesus expresses love as sacrificial love. John 4:10, we just read it. Number two is self-giving love. Galatians 2:20 gave himself For us, an offering, an offering for our sin. Self love is self-giving, giving of self, and it's renouncing love. In that in Philippians chapter 2, Scripture teaches us that Jesus deliberately and freely chose to abandon his status in heaven and perfection so that he could give himself for others. He renounced this world to enter this world. He gave up what was pleasurable and delightful and overwhelming good to give up that, to come down here and renounce it, to come be a part of broken, sin-riddled, pain-filled world. Because of love. Let me say this just real quick, right? This is this is for all of you but men. I'm gonna speak to the men real quick. You cannot listen. By looking at me, please. You cannot say that you love your spouse unless you are sacrificing yourself daily. You are giving of yourself daily, and if you're renouncing yourself daily. Why? Because if you view love through the cross, that's what it is. And wives, same message. You cannot say you love your spouse and you cannot say you love your children. I think it's easier if you do these things for your children. I think it's harder for you to do it for your spouse. You can't say you love your husband unless you're sacrificial every day. If you are self-giving, self-giving is never easy, right? Right. The, the what you feel every day is that you want to receive. There is no love apart from self giving and there is no love apart from renouncing self, renouncing what you want when you want it and how you want it so that your spouse can have what they want when they want it and how they want it. In the context of their relationship with you. There is no love. we live, first Advent, oh, praise Jesus, the thrill of hope, we can experience and then because of Jesus express the fullness of love. So let me tell you something. For those of you who are afraid your marriage is not going to make it, good news. The thrill of hope that the cross not only allows you to receive love, but it enables you to love. That's so good. He doesn't leave us incapable. He gives us the power of his spirit to sacrificially and self-giving and renounce his expression of love in every relationship that we're in. If you're struggling in your marriage, you cry out to Jesus, you promised in the thrill of hope. I'm hoping in the promise that I would receive the promise, the hope of your love, so that then, God, I can express the fullness of love. You're only able to love anyone because of Advent, the first coming. And therefore, it's imperative then, because we expect, listen, Christians that a Christian you're off the hook if you're a Christian the expectation of Jesus is very clear when you stand before me I want to know that you loved me with all your heart soul and mind and that you loved your neighbor sacrificially at all times because I gave you what you needed the cross to make that happen It's powerful. Hallmark Channel is great, guys. It is not Advent. It's not the coming. It's not the second coming. This is some cheesy, bad acting stories. Here we go, number three. Thrill of hope. This is important. For every single person out there who hates suffering, there is the thrill of hope, confidence in suffering. The thrill of hope in suffering in hardships, in difficulties. John Stott, the great evangelical theologian, says this. I, this is important for some of you. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? At the cross, he laid aside his exemption from pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. The beauty of Christ as Savior is not just the fact that, saved, that He died in our place, as beautiful as it is. The beauty is that in His death, He identified with us in every bit of suffering we will ever experience. You think about what you have suffered in your life. You think about the, listen, the impact that sin has had on your life. And we can say confidently that Jesus has experienced and gone through all of it. He experienced and suffered injustice. He felt the shame of nakedness. He was deprived human rights. He endured taunting, was the focus of others' rage. He was rejected. He was forsaken. He experienced the death of a loved one. He experienced great despair, and he experienced betrayals. He also experienced excruciating physical pain, thirst, hunger, emptiness, poverty, torment, confusion, and then ultimately the excruciating pain of death. He suffered for us. But most importantly, he suffered with us. And what I mean by he suffered with us is you remember when that moment happened when someone sinned against you and it hurt like hell, literally? Like hell just like crushed your heart and stepped upon it because someone sinned or something sinned against you? Jesus died for that sin and literally in the moment of that suffering that you felt, he goes, I remember that one. In fact, I'm experiencing it with you right now. He's experienced it. He's not unaware of your specific suffering. What you were going through on a daily basis. The effects of a fallen world, he's experienced the weight of them. And so he's not unaware of. He is compassionate. He is sensitive. And we live in this thrill of the hope that in our suffering, we can hope that God will use it to redeem and to save. Steve Siemens again says, God's, this is important, God's solution to the problem of suffering is not to eliminate it, nor to insulate himself from it, but to participate in it, and having participated in it, to transform it, into his instrument for redeeming the world. What does that really mean for me, Steve? Well, it's really simple. If God took Jesus' suffering and used it to redeem the world and to bring salvation, then I believe the thrill of hope is the promise today that he will take your suffering, he will redeem it, he will use it for your salvation and for others, and it will be powerful for the purpose of the kingdom. That is the thrill of hope in suffering. Advent, the thrill of hope for a substitute, the thrill of hope to experience God's love, the thrill of hope that my suffering was not in vain, just like his suffering was not in vain. We celebrate that he came. We celebrate that he saves every day. And we celebrate that he will come again our responsibility is to live as if that day is tomorrow honoring him with the best of our life living with our vision focused on the things of god's kingdom to live as if advent is coming because it is when you wake up tomorrow morning advent will have come again because he is present to save you in all of your life and when you suffer And when you suffer, not if, when you suffer, he'll say, I am with you, I'm suffering with you, and I will redeem this, and it will be used in a powerful way for the purpose of my kingdom, because no suffering is ever in vain, just like my son's suffering was not in vain. There's a thrill of hope. Fight the worship team to come. We're going to worship for a while. We're going to respond to the Lord this morning. What I want you to think about as you come in this morning is, I want you to recognize again the gravity and the weight of sin. But I don't listen. They look great. I know Silver Fox is walking up here. That was Timothy. I just almost pushed you off the stage. Thank you. But in the moment, in this moment, right, God looks and He says, "Oh, sin defines the world." But the lens I'm even viewing that through is my powerful love. And I want those who do not know me, who are literally responsible right now because they've never actually asked forgiveness, they've never let me come and be their substitute. This morning, He wants to be your substitute.